You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Um, at City Lights, we preach through, um, not, not always, sometimes we change the pace up a little bit, but we want to preach expositorily, which means verse by verse. Um, and we want to be able to go through a book of the Bible. There's some times where that really plays easily into preaching. There's other times where that kind of makes it a little bit difficult because you don't get to predetermine what you're going to say. Uh, it's not that I just get to come up and say, okay, I want to say this this week. It's actually the Bible saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to preach this this week. And my hope is to get out of the way. Um, so with that said, Mark chapter 7, we're going to start together in verse 24. And from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, or demon, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now when the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat their children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Now turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 17. Now, we've talked about this before, but out of the four Gospels, the book of Mark is the shortest. There's only 16 chapters in the book of Mark. So it really is a almost highlight reel or bullet points, if you will, of the the life and testimony of Jesus. So the book of Luke has got 26 chapters, Matthew 29 chapters, right? So when you're, you're looking at that, they're kind of really stretched out more detail. The book of Mark kind of gives you just the bullet points. I want you to see this same story told in the book of Matthew chapter 17, and then we'll talk just for a few moments. Matthew 17, verse 14. Actually, that's not the one I wanted to go to. It is 17. I just want to make sure I'm at the right one. Actually, 15. Sorry, that makes more sense. 1521. And Jesus went away, from the, went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Watch what, she, watch what she says right here. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying... Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's interesting. Here's this woman is crying out, O son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what we're about to see here is not Jesus being rude or even aggressive. Uh, What he does here in one moment I find fascinating Because we tend to think that we have a right towards God saving us. Uh, We tend to think very um, democratic in our thinkings, or in a democracy, if you will, where we look at what God is doing, and if God, in a sense, owes us salvation, God owes us forgiveness, 
God owes us a better life, and it really is amazing. It's kind of uh, inbred into the way we think about the American dream that we kind of all deserve something, right? So when we're at work and something goes wrong, it's, uh, you know, I deserve better than this. I read an article just this past week. It was written in Forbes magazine, and it says, how do we teach our kids to, to win in a culture where everybody wins and nobody loses? And what's happened, maybe you've experienced that where you go, uh, the YMCA, I love the place, other than the shower part kind of freaks me out with everybody, you know what I mean. But anyways, the YMCA, everybody plays, everybody wins. And what happens is that we have kind of created a culture now where as long as you show up, you win. And what this um, author says in Forbes magazine, he's talking about how that is transition. And he asked the question, as parents, have we loved our children too much? Have we tried to shelter them too much from losing to the point now that when they show up at work, they think that just showing up means that they deserve a promotion just because they, show, they showed up. And it's also, I would even say the negative side of that, when people don't show up, they can't understand why they get fired, Right? They, they don't show up on time. But I deserve this job. Why? Because I, it's cause, cause I'm here. Well, you're late. But I, I've been here before. And, they, and our culture doesn't understand winning and losing, right? Right from, right, we indoctrinate children right from the beginning of like, you know, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. Well, the truth is, uh, you can't. You, you just can't. Sorry if I wrecked it. Everyone's saying, man, we should have had brunch. Should have went to Denny's, Right? You can't be anything you want. You're not going to be a center in the NBA if you're five foot five. All right? The, the movie Rudy, um, which I, people mispronounce my last name like that all the time, but that, that movie is wonderful. The only problem is Rudy never did anything other than got like one tackle, and now he's a motivational speaker telling everybody that you can be what you want to be, although he never became what he wanted to be. Right? Think about it. I'm going to be a football player. What did he do? He went out, got one tackle. That was the whole thing. We're like, that guy's awesome. Why? Because he overcame the circumstances. He showed, he proved everybody wrong. No, the truth is he just goes and tells everybody that they can be something that he never got to be. That's kind of a fascinating idea. We indoctrinate people right from the beginning of life though, with this philosophy that you, uh, uh, you're owed something, that this is yours, that you're a part of this. And what we see here is interesting because Jesus gives us a little bit of a glimpse into how salvation works. What is salvation and how God does this with mankind? And and how do we see this? In the life of a Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman. Those words are synonymous. Matthew's just writing to a different group of people. What happens is this woman comes to Jesus and says, Heal my daughter. You know, please heal her. Have mercy on me. And she actually says, son of David, which is a Jewish messianic title. That's not just somebody like, hey, healer guy, will you heal me? She was saying, oh, son of David, I recognize who you are. You're the Messiah. Although we know at the first century time, Jesus is not the only person to claim to be Messiah. And there's still plenty of people that claim to be Messiah as well, particularly if you go to Los Angeles, the cardboard signs. They're everywhere, all right? So what happens here is that this woman says, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Heal me. She says, I recognize you're the Messiah. And Jesus snaps back right there and says, I'm not healing you. I didn't come for you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Now that's, to me, I would be like, but that's not fair. That, 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 that doesn't work here. 
But why does he say, I came for the lost sheep of Israel? Let me talk just for a few moments in case you're um, discovering Christianity or working through what is this Christian thing. Um, Our God, our Savior, came as a Jewish man some 2,000 years ago, right? At the age of 33 plus something, died on a Roman cross. Now, he didn't just decide one day to wake up and God said, you know what I think is going to make this thing better? If I come to earth and die on a cross, I think that's going to make it better. What we do is we track God coming to mankind, God with us, God Emmanuel, all the way back to the Old Testament. This Old Testament promise starts in the book of Genesis, that at the fall of mankind, God makes a promise that the moment that the earth is broken, he says, I'm going to fix it. And you're not going to mess it up. I'm going to fix it. So over these thousands of years, or could be more, whatever that time span is, this small little embryonic promise begins to unfold and grow and grow and grow. Ultimately, we see that in Genesis chapter 10 and into 11, chapter 11, we see that God says, the way that I'm going to restore this world is through a man named Abraham. And everybody goes, how's this going to work? And God says, you're going to have descendants as multiple as the stars in heaven or the sand on the seashore. And this guy can't conceive. But God again says, I made a promise to make all things new, and it's coming through you. Of course, what happens, Abraham um, takes for himself another wife because his wife, Sarah, or Sarai at that time, couldn't conceive. He goes off and, uh, you know, takes Hagar They have Ishmael, and now we have war for the past few thousand years. Thank you, Abraham. (laughs) It's just true. So he tries to do the promise on his own. He can't make it happen. So God says this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to fix this whole thing through a Jewish seed. He doesn't say I'm going to use just anybody. It's through Abraham's seed. So now what we see is that the nation of Israel is born. And people begin to think, okay, great. Now Messiah is coming. And over and over and over, they keep using the word Messiah, which means anointed one. means uh, not Savior in the sense of sins, but anointed one, anointed for a purpose. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, these Messiahs would be raised up by God for a specific purpose and time and place. But yet they would come and they would die. They'd come and they would die. These, and the word Messiah, as I'm saying, is not just used for Jesus. Over and over and over it just didn't work. But it was a promise that God was going to use Abraham and Abraham's seed, his descendant, to reconcile all things to himself. It was a Jewish promise. It was a Jewish promise. So now Jesus comes on the scene. And here he is, now the fulfillment of that Jewish promise of a Messiah. And this woman now is outside of the covenant. Um, I I want you to see this because this is not fair if we think through a lens of democracy because this woman does not have access to the son of David. She shouldn't have access if it's based on the sheer covenant, okay? Um, If you try to get in bed with me and my wife, I'm going to kick you out, all right? I guess that's the only way I can say that. Don't try that. That's not something I'm, I'm, there's no invitation, all right? Uh, I'm in covenant with her. That, that's, 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 uh, that's my bed. First of all, I wouldn't want you in my bed anyways, all right? I gotta know, but, but if you tried, 
The covenant is not an invitation to you. So if you come in, you're uninvited, all right? So what happens is this woman comes and tries to lay hold of a Jewish promise. She tries to lay hold of a covenant that wasn't ever offered to her, not at this time. So she says, heal my daughter. And Jesus looks and says, "Uh, no, this isn't yours. Now, at that moment, we, we, we have one of two options here. We can either think that Jesus was like joking with her, kind of winking at her, like, come on, like you keep trying a little harder. I, I, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think he was looking at her going, you know, what's the magic word? Wink. I think Jesus was very clearly saying, I didn't come for you. What? That doesn't make sense. The only way that we can make sense of this is with an understanding of biblical theology. Something that we don't just take one verse and say, this is what it means, and I understand the whole Bible. We have to understand that the Bible is a story. That the Bible is not one scripture verse that we decide, Jesus, okay, you did this, I'll apply it to my life. We have to see that this is a part of a bigger story. And what is this bigger story? This woman understood that when the promise was made to Abraham, it was not just made for a Jewish people, but that the Jewish people from them would come a Messiah, and that Messiah would save all things and reconcile all people, Gentile or Jew, for all that would place faith in him. This woman saw beyond her day. I want you to see this because I I think too often we come to church and we think that God owes us salvation. Like you died on a cross, like you owe me that. As if like he chose to do that because we somehow, you know, negotiated with him. We've talked through this before. You can't negotiate with somebody that doesn't need anything. The only way you can negotiate is that they have something that is needed. God needs nothing from us. He sets up this incredible barrier and Jesus looks and says, is it not right, right, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Now that is like the highest wall that a person could put up in that moment. To me, that doesn't seem like the God of grace and the God of, uh, of, of peace that I know. How does he look at it? I mean, imagine that on a Sunday morning. You know, Jesus came, Jesus is coming to our church to speak. Come hear him speak. This is going to be a great message. Anybody that's got like, you know, 10% Jew in them this morning, they're like, yeah, I'm in, right? Everybody else is like, oh, this is bad. He gets up and like, you're all dogs and I'm not here to help. At all. The end. I'd be severely disappointed. I'd be like, that's not very grace-filled, Jesus. That's, no, but what we see is that Jesus does heal this woman. But why? He doesn't heal her because this woman pulled the magic string and said, I know who you are. You're the Savior. You owe it to me. Look. Jesus says, no, I don't owe you anything. I'm God. The rules of the game are actually, I don't owe anything to you. You're ostracized. You're on the outside. I only am obligated. This is what Jesus is saying, that if I want to play by that rule right there, if you want to pull the string, then let me show you what the game is. The game is this. I don't owe you anything because you are not Jewish. But then what does the woman say? Verse 27, Matthew 15. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What does this verse show us? That God does not save us because he owes us anything. 
He saves those that are humble and broken in heart. That's what it is. There's no magic formula. God doesn't owe us anything. Here this morning, the truth is, whether I like this or not, um, dogs in uh, New Testament and Old Testament times are not pets. They're, they're not cuddly. They're not warm. I'm sorry, Hannah. I know it's true. She's a veterinarian. It, it, it's just not true. At that time, do- it wasn't like, let's bring in the dogs. And this is like, now, you know, I grew up with a pet dog. I loved it. Uh, it would take me for walks, though. Have you ever had a dog like that? You try to hold it, and it pulls you out, right? And you're running with it. Dogs, biblically speaking, is not something like, oh, even the dogs eat from the table. Like, there are people that cook full-blown meals for their pets, right? I didn't say buy it. Like, cook, prepare, cut. How many people are doing that at home? You know it. Everyone's like, that's me. Okay. Dogs, in this context, are not positive. So when Jesus says... Am I really going to take what's meant? You're outside of this whole covenant thing. Am I going to give that to you and just throw it to you? And then she looks at it and says, no, I see something. I understand the fallen, broken nature of who I am. I understand that I'm a dog. What she does there is she actually identifies with her brokenness. She doesn't run from it. She doesn't hide from it. She doesn't make an excuse for it. Nor does she try to negotiate with Jesus. She says, you're right. I'm a dog. I'm broken. I am needing you. What a vastly different approach to God than we often take. The approach to God that we take when something goes wrong. God, why did you let this happen? Right? God, how could you? Why did you do this? As if God is somehow pulling strings maliciously against us. Isn't it amazing, though, that the deepest conviction in our hearts when something goes wrong is instantly to blame God? Which brings just two, needs two subpoints to explain that. Number one, if you're struggling with a belief in God, I would suggest to you that that is one of the greatest um, measures of truth that you'll ever find. I've never heard when somebody, something goes wrong that they don't look to blame something else. And the truth is, after you run out of people to point the finger to, you point to something that's invisible. And C.S. Lewis would tell us that that very thing that's put inside of you, that's reaching to blame something invisible, shows you that you are hardwired to believe in something bigger and beyond yourself. Why do we do that? When something goes wrong, the first thing, God, why did you do that to me? You're not allowed. That presupposes that God somehow has promised us a life of no pain, of no hardship, of no suffering, where everything goes right. Everyone's going, man, we, Denny's, have buy one, get one free, and you're, we should have went to brunch. It's true. When we blame God, when we feel that aggression towards him, it presupposes the idea that he has somehow promised us a better life. Let me talk just for a few moments about the better life of the gospel. The better life of the gospel is John the Baptist's head on a silver plate. The better, the better news of the gospel is historically Isaiah being cut in half, sawed in two. The better news of the gospel is Paul the apostle being beheaded. Now how do we square that with this? This intrinsic thing that God owes me something. I would suggest that the only way I can make sense of this 
is that if I peel back the layers and I have to determine what is the chief end of man, uh, the chief end of man, what is the goal of mankind? Why are you created? What's the purpose? Because my concern is that we've taken verses in the Bible like this, have cut them out, thrown them out because they are not convenient to our purposes. They don't fit the American dream. They don't fit what makes me comfortable. If Jesus called me a dog, I'd go find a different Jesus. Come on. People get offended at church. It's like, I'm going to run from church discipline. I'm going to go find another church. I'm going to talk bad about them when I show up. That's reality. I don't, I, I don't like what he said at this church. It, 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 it challenged me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go run and find a different church. And then I'm going to talk trash about another church. That's ridiculous. That presupposes, though, underneath. I want you to see that. That fundamentally, we're saying that I am created for myself. Because if something goes wrong and I'm upset at God then that means that in essence, the logic behind that would say that life is fundamentally about me. Therefore, if it's not about me, I get frustrated when it's not about me and I'm, a blame, I'm allowed to blame the person that's in control. I ho- hope you see this, everything right. Man, we can go to Denny's if you want. I'm just saying, I'm going to preach it there either way, okay? It presupposes the idea that we are what we are created for, that the chief end of man is to know ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever. And if, it's, and if life's not working in that way, and if God doesn't play to that tune, then instantly I get hurt and offended. What I'm seeing here, though, is that God is not so interested in giving you a better life. He's interested in giving you an abundant life. Let me explain. A a, a better life, Jesus is a means to an end. He is my convenient way of how I can get something. So I need a job. I leverage my prayer, right, in a way that if I don't get it, I'm angry at God. So Jesus becomes my means to my end. If I'm in a relationship and that relationship begins to crumble, then I'm going, Jesus, and I try to use him as a means to an end. The Bible shows us this, though, that God is doing something in humanity, and you can either be in it or be out of it. It's up to you. And he doesn't lose sleep over it at the end of the night. Jesus is not going like, you know, let me just encourage you if you're here this morning. He doesn't call me on my cell phone and go like, "Uh, how many people were at church on Sunday? I'm like, I'm not really sure. It was a little bit down. The weather was bad. Yeah, it was a little snowy. They didn't, they didn't really show up today. He's like, oh, man, we're really struggling with this whole mission, saving the world thing, aren't we? I'm doing my best. They just won't listen to me on Sunday morning. Oh, whoa, I thought that was him. Okay. He doesn't call. Because God is not looking at a church going, I really hope that people show up and give me what I want or need. He's not. What he does is this. He shows up and he says this, I'm the savior. This is the rules of the game. I'm doing something in this earth. You can either be a part of it or not. That's it. You're either in or you're out. You don't, you're not owed anything. Life is not for you. It's not about you. He says through this text what the Westminster Confession tells us, that the chief end of man is not to enjoy ourselves forever. It is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. 
So all of life is trying to show us when something goes wrong, the Christian's perspective should not be, God, where are you, in the sense of his absence, but in the sense of his presence. Both people ask the same question when something goes wrong. I want you to see this. When something goes wrong in an unbeliever's life, God, where are you? When something goes wrong in a Christian's life, they ask the same question, where are you? One is a matter of absence or distance. The other is a matter of his presence and awareness of what he's working. How many people here this morning can testify with me that something has not gone according to plan and only months or weeks or years later can you look back and say, thank you, God, that that didn't work. Thank you, God, that that didn't work. Thank you that that relationship didn't work that I wanted. Thank you that that engagement broke up. Thank you that that job fell through. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because for the Christian and the unbeliever, we both ask those same question, God, where are you? But the unbeliever asks in an accusatory, distant, absent, you're out of here. You don't mean anything. You're not real. If you were real, wouldn't, you wouldn't have done this. The Christian asks the question, where are you? As to find what Romans says, he works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. A Christian understands that life is not fundamentally about us. It is fundamentally about him, his presence, and his beauty. That's it. So that I can come now. And this woman says to him, Heal my daughter. And Jesus, I believe, tests her. Absolutely tests her. And says, I'm not going to heal you. I'm just not going to do it. What would we do? What would you do in that situation? I'll, don't worry, I'm not going to call you a dog. I'm not going to do anything like that. That would, just be, that would just be ridiculous. Except Jesus did it, so I guess I can, maybe I couldn't. Okay. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. Jesus says, I'm not going to do this for you. I'm just, gonna, I'm just I'm giving up on this whole Christianity thing. You know, I've seen so many of my close friends walk through that exact type of scenario. And you can see it from a mile, two mile, 10 mile, 15, 20 miles away. It's like a slow moving uh, train wreck. And you just know. Because their life and their Christianity, even in the words and the flavor of the language that they use, portrays that Jesus is just at that moment the most convenient tool, right? He's just the back scratch that can get to that area that nobody, nobody else does. And as long as it plays into the idolatry of their heart, wonderful. But the moment something goes wrong, that is their ultimate, uh, ultimate proof that God doesn't exist. Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm going to put that in a fortune cookie. I'm going to slip that in someday. Just see when people are eating food. Oh my Lord, what in the world is this? Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord. You're right. You're right. I understand that life is not about me. There's nothing about my daughter or the demon that she has that she inherently has the right to be set free. There's nothing about that that deserves that. I know I'm preaching an uncomfortable message. I didn't write the Bible, though. There's nothing about that that deserves it. Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs 
Jesus looked and said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as your desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I'm so thankful that that story had a happy ending. Doesn't that make you feel a little bit better? Like, oh, he still heals. Okay. It makes me feel better. Because wouldn't, wouldn't that be a bummer if I just said, amen, we're done? Like, and next verse. I'm so thankful. Because the truth is, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of other people, particularly, maybe you remember the story in Jesus' hometown. What happens? Jesus' hometown, they show up. They're comfortable with him. They know who Jesus is. And they say, Jesus, do this for me. Heal me. Do this. And then Jesus goes, all right, I'm ready to do it. And they go, nah, we don't like you. You're, you're not playing into our themes. You're not the Jesus that I can control. Now you're Lord and Savior. Now you're defining who we are. Now this, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the scripture says that he could only do but a few miracles and a few healings there. If you want to quench God's move in your life, if you want to quench the Spirit's move in your life, I'll tell you what to do. Determine how God's going to work in your life. The scripture says in John chapter 3 that this is how people of the Spirit move. They are like the wind, blown here and blown there. You want to control God? Tell him exactly what you want to happen. Scripture says a man plans in his heart which way he'll go. God directs his steps. Is God, is Jesus a means to an end or an end in himself? As a church, as an individual, we have to get out of this Eurocentric American thinking that I'll say it like this. I'm reading a sociology book right now, right? And I'm I'm reading a chapter on death. That's not not a fun chapter to read about. And it's so cold. And I know the medical students that are here, I'm sure you could agree with this. You you look at death through a scientific or even a, a, a sociology lens, and it just feels uncomfortable. My cousin through marriage... Not, not my Aaron. I didn't say I married my cousin. Let me make, be that clear. That would have been real bad. This is not my cousin through marriage. My cousin, through whom I'm now a cousin, because I'm married to somebody who's not my cousin, that's, that's what I was trying to communicate there, just to be clear. All right? So we are not related other than now by marriage, not by blood or cousin. Okay. Moving on. Just to be clear. You know, she, she had to do some things in medical school where you have to work with cadavers, which to me sounds like a wonderful tool to have in your garage, personally. I don't know why they made name, name a cadaver for a, a, a lifeless body. Sorry, that's, we're not cousins. I just want to get it clear. But she said it was so weird because at first, when you're in this room, you feel uncomfortable. And I've never been in that room, and I've don't want to. But at first you find yourself almost, am I disrespecting the body? But then you get to a place over, over the course where you don't feel that you're disrespecting the body anymore. Now it's just another body. And now it's just science. And, and she said, you know, I struggled because here I am, I'm looking, and this is somebody's dad, brother, mom, sister, somebody like that, cousin. Um, and as the course has gone on, it's just, become, it's just become science. I say that 
to say that you can live in one of those two uh, overly hot world or overly cold world. You can live in a world of science, which is very cold and death is just a part of human life. Or you can live in a world which is so fascinated and wrapped up in emotion that we forget that there are people that came before us and there will be people that come after us and you are but a blip on the screen. Uh, we are like extras. I want you to hear this. We are like extras in a Hollywood movie uh, that don't get paid. You, how goofy would it be if you um, starred as an, I didn't say, listen, I said starred as an extra. All right? So you're like, guys, you got to come see my movie. You were in Star Trek? You know, or you were in, you were in the, whatever, whatever movie, right? You got to see, you got to see my role. And you're like, you, you're there? Oh, wow, I didn't know you were in the movie. And then here comes, right, ready? And somebody gets up to go to the bathroom and they come back and you're gone. Well, what, you didn't see the back of my head there? Anybody ever been an extra in a movie? You didn't see the back of my head there for like two seconds? How ridiculous would it be to invite friends and family, roll out a red carpet, come on, show up at the movie theater with cameras, videotape, the whole thing, and you're like, I'm in the movie, I'm, I'm a centerpiece. No, the movie's not about you. You're just an extra that's here one moment and passing another. That's what the scripture says. You are here one moment like grass in a field, but the word of God endures forever. How silly would it be to do that? To flip things on its head like that. Oh, I'm in the movie. No, you're an extra. And there's a whole bunch of people just like you. See, we can live in one of those two, either an overly cold world of science that's just, that's just, it's just human body, it's death, it's natural life processes, don't grieve. Or you can live on the other side where this is, oh my gosh, this is everything. I'm the most important thing that's ever created here, right now in this moment. I would suggest to you that the only consistent way of viewing life and reality is that God is who we're created by and what we're created for. You were created to find your ultimate joy in Christ. Now, I need to make a couple closing footnote marks because I don't want to confuse um, anybody because of the nature of this message. What I did not say today, all right, what I did not say today is do not pray to God to change your circumstances. I didn't say that. But test your heart when you're praying. When something comes into your life, the scripture doesn't show us, oh, life, we're just fatalists. Whatever happens, happens. That's not it. This scripture shows us that we have to test our hearts when we're asking something from God. I did not say, do not pray. What I'm saying is that God wants to answer your prayers. God wants to deliver your daughter, spiritually speaking, in this text. God wants to heal you. God wants to deliver you. He wants you to have all of those things, but for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? That you would know him and enjoy him forever. Amen. Can we stand together? Worship team, if you could come just for a few moments as we close. We serve an amazing God. We serve an amazing God. We do. Who owes us nothing. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin. 
while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The book of Romans expounds on this subject of uh, the Jewish people and Gentiles, their relationship in the covenant of Christ. I hope I'm not, I'm preaching. If I bore you, I bore you. It is what it is. Paul talks about this and he, he unpacks it in this way, saying that God, the vine of covenant, the branches, the root, the olive tree is the promised Israel. But God temporarily blinded them so that he could include people that the covenant was never made to. Um, it's kind of like, this is going to be a sad analogy, but it's true. It's kind of, you know, you know, you have the friend that uh, you weren't really invited but then there was an extra seat in the car. Okay. Maybe you're that friend that does that to people. I would call you forward to repent this morning. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the journey, the, the restoration here, the promise was to Israel. But then God said this, I'm going to literally cause a stupor. That's the word to come over their eyes, to temporarily blind them. So I'm going to love this world enough that I'm going to temporarily blind the people that I love the most. I know that might sound strange. It's true. Um, I'm going to, and, and we see that actually played out again in Christ. The thing I love, the person I love the most, Christ, I'm going to crucify him to allow people that don't have a right to to be a part of it. The only response I can ever muster up when I look at this thing is, is God, why? Why? I don't think of grace as a thing of, uh, man, you owe me that. I look at this and I go, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I'm, I don't know what I am. I've got red hair. I burn when I think about snow from the reflection off it. I get sunburned on anything. I'm not, I'm as far from Jewish as it comes. I love bacon. That was a confession. It's not kosher, in case you're wondering why I said that. Not just, if somebody didn't know what that meant, they're like, why did you say I love bacon? That was random. There's nothing in me that deserves this. Just not. Just not. There's nothing in you. If God looks at you this morning, He says to all of us, and I would I would suggest this, and under the auspices that somebody here is a hundred percent Jewish, we see in the New Testament that you're not saved because of your bloodline. But Paul the Apostle says this, that although I'm the, the, the Jew, most Jewish person you could be, the most righteous according to the law, to the old covenant, I'm as good as it gets there. He still says, I count it as nothing. Because even though the promise was made to me, I can't attain it on my own. So that both are saved by grace. This morning, my prayer for you is that you realize if you're struggling with your uh, identity, 
If you're, if you're depressed here this morning, and maybe... I don't... I feel very compelled to say this. If you're struggling with your identity this morning, mercy and grace can set you free. You don't have to work for God's approval. Um, you can say to the Lord, like, like the woman in our text this morning, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Just, just yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. But you're the son of David. But you're the Messiah. Yes, Lord. But even sinners are saved by grace. Yes, Lord. But even sinners are saved by grace.